Welcome to the supporting cast. This is Eli Goldsmith. Today's guest is D.D. Myers. At age 31, D.D. Myers became the first female White House press secretary of the United States. D.D. shares with us her story, which began in Valencia, California, attending Hart High School and speaking about some of the teachers there and at Santa Clara University who influenced her. She then talks about her road in politics, which eventually led its way to the candidacy of Bill Clinton. Dee Dee shares many stories about the Clinton campaign, in addition to her post-political work with the West Wing, uh, working for Aaron Sorkin as a creative consultant. Dee Dee is the inspiration behind the C.J. Craig character on that show, played by Allison Janney. I should note that Dee Dee worked in politics and at times expresses some fairly minor political opinions during this conversation. But regardless of whether you agree with them, Dee Dee is a pioneer of sorts, having worked at the cross-section of gender, politics, and entertainment, all of which are so relevant to our national conversation. For this reason, it was such a privilege to have her as part of this series. This is The Supporting Cast. Welcome to the supporting cast. Uh, well, thank you for having me, Eli. It's good to be here. <laughs> so first question, a lot of people remember you from, from politics and from the White House, but your most recent role uh, was in entertainment. And what was that position? Right. I spent five and a half years uh, running corporate communications and public affairs at Warner Brothers, ah. which was a bit of a diversion uh, or not. Um into the entertainment industry. Uh, it was an incredibly interesting, uh, incredibly challenging. I learned a tremendous amount. Uh, and, you know, people often ask me, like, isn't that such a radical departure from politics in yeah. Washington? And the answer is there are two industries where people, full of people with, you know, incredibly accomplished people with big egos who think <laughs> yeah. um, that the entire world is always looking at them. And to a certain degree, it's true. Huh. Um, but there was certain similarities in the culture. And people were. I mean, there was a, an inordinate amount of attention paid to what happened at Warner Brothers, as there is always an inordinate amount of attention paid to what goes on in Washington, and both for good reasons. So, But it was a, it was a fantastic um, uh, chapter in my career. Mm -hmm. And I'm now uh, figuring out what comes next. Interesting. And there's also in both areas, there's an entire press devoted just to that industry. Absolutely. Right? And that has a, you know, there's a tremendous amount of coverage, as you said, dedicated just to what's happening in, in those industries. And in some, to some degrees, they're both very, they're self-contained almost, although they have ramifications outside the world. The world itself is a little, can be a little inward turned. Got it. Uh, and sometimes people in both industries, and I'm guilty of it too, you forget that there's a whole world of people like getting up and going to work and, you know, putting food on the table and raising their kids and worrying about their schools and yeah. not thinking about, you know, whether the movie's going to open or, you know, yeah. whether, you know, who had a good debate performance or, you know, immediate appearance. So this an inflated weekend. sense of importance. Maybe yes. In both. I think that's very fair to say. <laughs> yeah. Um, what about the sense of if you're working in communications on behalf of an organization, it's sort of advocacy communications, right? You're, um, I would assume, communicating with the best interests of that organization in mind. And there's a lot of talk now about sort of truth versus advocacy. And we have advocacy 
advocacy right. communications at Harvard Westlake. So I'm right. not saying that the two are mutually exclusive. How did you think about that in charge of a, a large corporate kind of communications office? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, I have always thought about it in, in in both my roles in Washington and in Hollywood as it's a little bit like debating. I mean, you're making a case. You're making the best case for your point of view. Yeah. It has to be, in order to be effective, it has to be true. Got it. Uh, and it has to be based on real facts, and there are such things as real facts. Yeah. Um, and it has to hold up over time. I think, uh, and, and, and you can't use the truth or facts uh, or parts of facts in service of an argument that's ultimately not true because hmm. that's a lie too. Hmm. And I think that, you know, certainly um, in this moment, I think many p industries are guilty of doing that. You can say a lot of things that are independently true that might not add up to something that's uh, supportable. And so I, you know, and I, and I think over the long term, uh, for a lot of reasons, including your relationship with the media, which has always been sort of the referees in this game, um, and ultimately how the public perceives whatever the industry is, whether it's a, a company like Warner Brothers or a particular movie or, you know, a candidate that you're working for or the government writ large, if you, you know, if you constantly use information in the service of half-truths, yeah. ultimately you will fail. Right. Yeah, and how does that translate? Because you were, and we'll get to this later, um, uh, the White House press secretary for several years. How does it work where you are advocating for a particular administration that was freely elected, mm -hmm. but you're also sort of employed to an extent by the American people? So you're sort of advocating on one hand for a, a particular mission and how an administration plans to uh, deliver on that mission, but also your your employer is someone different than that administration to an extent. No, it's true. And I think, you know, throughout, the, the, there have been the, the, the kind of model that we think of as, a, as the White House press secretary sort of existed from Jim Haggerty and the late Eisenhower years through the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. The Trump administration has a very different view about the role of the press and the administration's responsibility uh, to the press and mm -hmm. what that relationship is. And, and they're entitled to that. But I think for that other sort of 60, 70 year history, uh, I think most of the press secretaries, and it's a small club and most of us know each other, yeah. um, felt, you know, there's a tension there that you you are the president's advocate to uh, the press and to the American people, but you're also the press's advocate inside the White House because mm. if you believe uh, that you cannot have a free society without a free press and that access to information is the public's right that an informed populace is essential to a democracy, yeah. then you take- And the take, press is their proxy. Oh, totally. Right. Uh, then you take that responsibility very seriously. And I think, uh, you know, I know, again, many press secretaries from both sides of the aisle, and I think every one of us until this most recent administration wrestled very seriously with that dual charge. And, you know, I mean, we all, to a person, have a story where, you know, the president was mad at you because yeah. he thought you were advocating for the press instead of protecting him or, um, you know, every president feels he's, and it's always been he, has been treated unfairly and maybe the most unfairly treated president in all of history. And all of us share that experience too because, <laughs> right. that you know, I mean, when you're on the receiving end, that is in fact how it feels. Yeah. Every you feel like every good deed, you know, gets punished and um, there's always somebody coming after you and no matter what you do, you can't get a break. And, um, and, and when you're inside, you do understand 
the relentlessness of the scrutiny and the questioning and, you know, if something goes well and is successful, you know, it's gone in a second, but if it's controversial, it plays for days. And yeah. um, that is part of, it, it's always been thus, right? It's always been thus in the press. I mean, one of the fun things about seeing Hamilton and so many people have had the opportunity to see or hear that. And it's now going to be a movie. And now it's going to be a movie. Not a Warner Brothers movie. Uh, and unfortunately, but... <laughs> no. Disney somehow managed to get that one. We would yeah. we have Lin Manuel's next movie though, which is a, a production of his first Broadway show called In the, the Heights. Heights. Oh, yeah. great. Okay. Which is very exciting. But when you see something like Hamilton, you realize that that tension has always been there. Yeah. Right. The people have been um, pamphleteering, or you know, uh, it, it, there's been a certain amount of of people trying to shape the public narrative with whatever tools they had and that fairness was not always their main uh, goal. Yeah. So and that's so so that has always been thus. And so I think the president deserves a, an advocate. Um I think the best advocates uh the best press secretaries are people who are always honest, mm -hmm. who are honest not only in service of specific facts but in terms of larger truths, but can still do that in a way that presents the president's perspective and his agenda in the best light. And I think, you know, that is a time-honored and honorable uh, role, although it's gotten hard and it's always been hard in a in a world of many, many competing voices and many competing agendas. And, you know, we're, we just, we're, we're a democracy, so we're messy to begin with and we're living in incredibly polarized times. So yeah. uh, all of which, and then of course, the speed with which information moves yeah. and that exponential increase from my day seems like, sure. you know, seems quaint you didn't back have, in the day. You didn't have President Clinton tweeting in the we middle of the day. We did not have Pat President no. Clinton tweeting. And in fact, there, you know, I mean, there was no internet really. I mean, it was, <laughs> you know, Al Gore was just inventing it. Right, um, exactly. <laughs> so um, I love Vice President Gore, um, <laughs> truly. Uh, so, but no, it was a very, you know, it was a very uh, nascent thing. And sure. so that even that, even though it felt at the time, like the advent of cable news, which kind of came of age during the Clinton presidency and then became, you know, I mean, certainly uh, a major component of his own impeachment process. Yeah. Um, you know, felt like a new dimension. And of course, that's, again, exponentially faster and more, um, you know, diversity of voices. It's very hard to um, have one unified um, kind of voice in this age, which has led to, right, the digital um, targeting that with, with all this data and the ability to thin slice data and to target messages. Yeah. You know, as a candidate or president, you can have a million different messages from a million different audiences near the twain shall meet. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, it is a very different world. And we're, you know, we're kind of living in a new chapter right now with two people, two of the many, but Mike Bloomberg and, and, and Donald Trump, who have both been very successful at reinventing the use of data mm. to serve their, whatever their objectives have been. Right. And both are men, and you mentioned that all of the presidents both are men, uh, until white men now, in their seventies, yes, yeah. <laughs> have been men. And uh -huh. I, what I didn't mention before is you were White House press secretary. You were the first female I was. White House press secretary at the age of thirty-one. Thirty-one, which yeah. I, it's is hard to believe. Yeah. So I'm I'm curious in this moment, um, with the Me Too uh, movement and with the Women's March and so forth, you were a pioneer um, for your gender in politics. How do you see the current era in which we are living um, where gender sort of meets politics and, and gender meets sort of entertainment as well? Yeah, you know, it's been, it's been really interesting. Um, you know, it was not, you know, being White House press secretary is, is never easy. And I, I uh, 
you know, obviously I self-interestedly think that being 31 years old and the first woman and from California, I will yeah. add, because I am, I grew up here. Yeah, which we'll uh, get to, yeah. Was the trifecta of kind of how not to go, you know, <laughs> to Washington. Um, and so that created some some hurdles for me in terms of credibility and authority. Yeah. Um, and, but I, I saw over the, you know, decades that I was in Washington that things became better. And, you know, the subsequent uh, women press secretaries, which are, we, we're now on the fourth, their gender was never an issue, yeah. right? It was never, even for Dana Perino, who was one of George W. Bush's press secretaries of, with whom I'm, I'm very friendly. Um, she just didn't face, you know, time had marched on and they yeah. had seen faces like ours, not just behind the White House podium, but in a lot of other places on nightly newscasts and in the State Department and, you know, uh, being CEOs of companies. Yeah. And so it didn't totally go away, but it just got, got a lot easier faster. But um, it takes someone to be the first. Yes, it takes someone to be the first, yeah. and um, and that you know that that was me. I have the scars to to prove it. Uh, no, <laughs> well, but it was a great the, opportunity. I guess what were the scars? Are you able to kind of look back and see what were the yeah, the I mean, ways I, you might have been treated differently? I just think it's harder. I I think two things. One, just generally, I think many things, but two yeah. are um, one. I think it's particularly for young women, particularly in the early '90s, it's just harder to be authoritative, particularly when mm-hmm. you're in a briefing room where most of the reporters are men, yeah. and almost all of them are older than you, and most of them have been there a long time. So partly they've earned their spurs. They're not. It's not just gender. I mean, I was a I was a newcomer, and I was young, and I was female. Yeah. But I think too. The structure in the White House in the Clinton days was different than it had been under previous presidents. And so um, there was a uh, – George Stephanopoulos was the communications director, but he was a very visible presence. And then I was the press secretary. And so you know, there was questions about my authority from the beginning, which were uh. exacerbated by the fact that I was female and young. So um, – and I do think that one of the challenges for women has long been making sure that your responsibilities don't exceed your authority. Hmm. Right. And I think I I think I, you know, I, I certainly got up to that line, if not crossed it at times where I had more responsibility than I had authority. Hmm. And I really had to struggle. I had to fight. And I and I like to think I succeeded, but it wasn't easy. You know, I, I think by the end of my tenure, I had enough authority to do my job, but it wasn't true every day. Yeah. And um, so that was um, that was part of it. Now, you know, I do think so. Washington, and particularly Democratic politics, which have always been a coalition mm-hmm. of different races and uh, genders and sexual orientations and whatnot, there's always been a a lot of attention not only to the realities but to the optics. Right? Mm-hmm. You would never go to a big meeting in a Democratic, you know, some kind of organization that that didn't look diverse. It just wouldn't happen. And you could say that the policies don't always reflect that 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 optics, but yeah. there was a sensitivity. I came here. Back to Los Angeles, where I, again I, I mostly grew up, and I was really surprised by how not only was the power structure very male and very white in Hollywood, mm. there was no self consciousness or sensitivity to it. Wow! It was the the attitude was really well. Well, we just hired the best people. <laughs> yeah. That's all. Yeah. Um, and I was really surprised by that. And 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 but over the five plus years that I was at Warner Brothers. Um, there was a tremendous change and that was, that was really encouraging to see. And it was a combination of, you know, there was threatened federal action. If you remember the ACLU got the federal EEOC to start to do an investigation and threaten some, you know, we didn't know what could have been anything, lawsuits, consent decrees, whatever. Then you had Oscars so white and then you had the Me Too movement. And all of a sudden I think there's been a tremendous, and there was also the realization by the way that content 
created by and 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 um, starring diverse people mm-hmm. is actually financially very successful, right? right? So, so economic, at the end of the day, there's there's right. the money part. Money to be made. Yeah, there's money to be made. But I think all so all those things have come together to really um, accelerate change in 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 what I think is 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 mostly positive ways. I think um, change is always. Um, uh, you know, is a little bit uh, messy. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, I think w- the industry is in a much better place than it was five and a half years ago. So that's been um, interesting. So you mentioned growing up in California. Where did you mm-hmm. grow up? I Did grew you? up in Valencia, oh, okay. Santa Clarita. Yeah, not far from not here. Not far from here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And yet, oh, so far from here. <laughs> uh, I worked at Magic Mountain. That was Did my, you really? Oh, yeah, that was where- That's kind know. of a summer job kind yeah, of thing? Yeah, summer. When I worked weekends and stuff when I was in school, high school. Ah. And so did all my friends. We all worked. Everyone worked there because- there's 3,000 kids between 16 and 23, so there was yeah. a lot. There was a lot to be said for that. Um, and where did you go to? Did you go to public school? I went to public school. I went to William S. Hart High School, mm. which I used I, to play you in base Hart in baseball growing up. Actually, where'd you go? Santa Barbara High School. Oh, that's right. I knew that. Um, yeah, yeah. But so Hart is is a has a as you know a very good baseball program. Yeah, and I know Harvard Westlake is obviously very proud Absolutely. of its fine baseball program. Yeah. But I believe last I checked, Hart High has the most players in the MLB of any high school Is in the nation. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. So, and it always had, had a good program when I was there and uh, uh, certainly a good program now. And it's a really good school. Uh, although when I was there um, growing up in, you know, we moved there in 1969 to mm-hmm. Santa Clarita and there was all this new construction and new houses and people flooding out there and the schools were a little overwhelmed ah. um, because it was just so much more demand for classroom space and teachers than there was capacity. It took a, you know, a decade or so for, I think, the school district to catch up. And so I, I, I kind of landed in a little bit in the, uh, in the growing years. Um, and so, um, uh, you know, it was, it was a, it was a, it was a really great place to grow up and it's a great school now, but I think, I, I look at what my son, uh, my son is a sophomore here, mm-hmm. and um, what he's doing and the access that he has to um, everything, right? Facilities and teachers and travel and, you yeah. know, uh, you know, interesting people that are here on campus all the time. And it was a very, it's a very different experience yeah. than, than I had. And, um, you know, I'm, although I, you know, I had a lot of great teachers too. Yeah, because a great teacher can be a great teacher. Yeah, any place. Yeah. Were, were there any? Is are there any folks in particular at Hart High School that you recall that helped inspire you or influence you? Yeah, there was. Um, there were. There were a number, but two in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, one was my English teacher, uh, and both of them has, have since passed away. Laurie Hunick. Um, she was very funny. I was mostly a science and math person mm-hmm. in high school, and thought that. Well, to, to the degree I didn't think we did not think about college the way p- kids think about college now. It was hmm. something you thought about, you know, around November of your senior year because the <laughs> UC and Cal State applications were due. Got it. Um, but um, uh, she was a she was an English teacher, and I had her twice for comp and comp, you know, two and. I only got two B's in high school, and they were both from her. (laughs) And yet, she was one of my favorite teachers. Um, She she just wasn't having it. You know, she just wasn't having it. She wasn't going to, like, I just wasn't a very good writer. Mm -hmm. Um, And And so she made you kind of just work harder and reach higher. Yeah, she did. And I didn't work as hard as she thought that I could or should. And, you know, we were always very friendly. And even after I graduated and my my friends, but she was just not giving me an A. So, 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 which, you know, and then when I went to college, same thing. I had a, you know, I want, I tried to take the AP to like opt, you know, to to pass out of freshman 
comp, uh, and I, I, I did not succeed uh-huh. at that. So I had to take freshman comp in college and had another fantastic teacher who um, really taught me to write. Because hmm. she also wouldn't be like, nope, send it back, send it back. Send and who it was back. that teacher? Um, Diane Dreer. Hmm. And, and where was this? This was at university. I went to the University of Santa Clara. Got it. Or actually, Santa Clara University. They changed the name about twenty years ago. Mm-hmm. But then I took a political science class in the uh, spring quarter. We were on the quarter system of my freshman year, and totally changed my life. Uh-huh. Rocked, rocked my world. I didn't know that that was a thing. Was it the professor, or was it just the material? What was it about it that that suddenly you went? Maybe I need to work in politics. Yeah, it was both. It was a great professor, and uh, I remained friendly with him until he died a few years ago, named mm. Eric Hansen, mm-hmm. and he taught um, comparative politics, intro to comparative politics. Yeah. And um, he was a very dramatic, very theatrical um, <laughs> teacher and, and a lot of fun, uh, yeah. but also really brought the material alive. And, um, you know, so uh, it was it was everything, and I realized that that was something that I had always been interested in but it, it just it just didn't manifest in high school. There just wasn't, yeah. you know, there, there wasn't an opportunity to take classes like that, or I somehow managed to skirt around them. I, mm-hmm. I don't know how I managed to do it, but I but I did. Yeah. Uh, and so all of a sudden, it opened up a whole new world to me. And does that before he passed away? Did did he know that he was influential to oh, you in yeah. this way, and uh, yeah. saw you at White House press briefings and felt that sense? Yeah, of Yeah, and I pride. went back and saw him and kept in touch with them. Oh, and that's so nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was he was. Uh, and there's a couple of the uh, teachers in that department too. Um, Dennis Gordon, who's still there, um, in particular. But um, but yeah, that was that was a moment where you know a, f- a switch flipped for me. And mm-hmm. again, I mean, I'm sure it was. If I'd had a terrible teacher that you know semester, I don't know w- whether I would have caught you know the the, the fever. Yeah. Wow. But um, and it was s- fantastic. And so from there, how did you get your start? in politics and how did it kind of lead its way to uh, the Clinton campaign, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So I graduated from Santa Clara with a degree in political science. Yeah. I graduated from college with no idea what I was going to do. I had never known anybody that worked in politics. I mm-hmm. didn't really know what a career in politics would look like. Um, so I did a couple of weird things, but I just uh, one day, I just picked up the phone and I cold called the California State Democratic Party. Hmm. Um, and this man named Robbie Roberts Robertson answered the phone. Hmm. And anybody that knew Robbie will remember him. Hmm. California Democratic Party. <laughs> Robbie Robertson speaking. Um, he answered the phone there for, I think, 25 years. And we became friends, of wow. course, until his untime. Well, he was probably in his 80s, but um, maybe even older when he passed away a while ago. But um, so, Robbie, I, I said I want to volunteer for the Walter Mondale campaign. Because mm. I was, I was, nineteen eighty four, I guess, and uh, he connected me with a woman who was working in a law office, um, and the chairman of the campaign was a lawyer in that office, and um, that man's name was Mickey Cantor, mm-hmm. and he went on to be Secretary of Commerce in and tr- and the Trade Rep in the Clinton administration. But at the time, he was a lawyer and an old friend of. Hillary Clinton's from their legal aid days, uh, decades, a couple decades earlier. Um, and so the woman who was working for him, she was a paralegal in the office and her name was Terry Hannigan. And um, she said, yeah, you you can come in and volunteer. So I went in and um, there wasn't much to do. It was pretty early in the California campaign. But one of the things, so I would just, whatever she needed, whatever they needed, I would do. So one of the things I would do is when Vice President Mondale was coming to Los Angeles, mm-hmm. I would call around at the local elected officials' office, and I would invite them to come to the airport to, you know, greet 
Vice President Mondale uh, on, upon his arrival. And I thought it was just the coolest thing hmm. that had ever happened. I was like, I would call up I, random. I don't even remember. Maybe the mayor's secretary. I could call Mayor Bradley's office. Uh, yeah, hi, this is Dee Dee Miles from the Mondale campaign. <laughs> um, and I would provide the information and uh, call them back and make sure that they had the security clearance info that they needed or whatever. Um, and that was it. And so then um, I volunteered there and I worked weekends and evenings in a department store hmm. um, at Bullocks. It used to be at Century City Mall. Huh. And uh, it just, just so I would be able to support myself and then you know, things moved on and the campaign opened. I went and found office space and we mm. opened our primary office and then I was the volunteer coordinator in the office. And then um, during the primary, um, the mayor's pre Mayor Bradley's press secretary took a leave of absence for a couple months and came to run the press operation in the Mondale primary headquarters. And I got a load of that and I was like, yes, that's what I want to do. Wow, yeah. So I managed to, you know embed myself into her operation and um in the later in the campaign I became a press assistant in the press office and um yeah her name's Allie Webb and she's still one of my close friends. Huh. Um so uh then after the so then, you know, I, I I really I was really quite sure Mondale was gonna win. And he lost forty nine states, uh, <laughs> which was, you know, not a not a endorsement of my political acumen. Got but it. I went from there to work for a state senator who I met on the campaign named Art Torres, and then from there I went to work for Mayor Bradley. The press secretary hired me when there was an opening in that office, mm -hmm. and then Brett, Tom Bradley ran for governor in for the second time in nineteen eighty six, and I worked on that race. Uh, and he lost. And then I went to work for Michael Dukakis, mm -hmm. and he lost. And mm -hmm. then I went to work for Diane Feinstein, which she ran for governor in 1990, and she lost. Wow. Yeah, so it's pretty obvious why Bill Clinton reached out to me in 1991. <laughs> so what, before you get into Bill Clinton, what did you learn from, from losing, I guess? That must um, have been hard. You know, you work so hard. None of these positions yeah. are, are, are paid yeah. no, <laughs> a huge they're, amount. No, they're and, not. So it's not like you have a big financial but we know it's not like you had a big whoop, whooping payday. Yeah, yeah. right. There's, there's no golden H parachute. How did you kind of cope with with losing after working so hard? Yeah, it's very disappointing. Yeah, uh, obviously. And the other thing that happens is like your entire life, you're working, you know, whatever a billion hours a week, and then you lose on Tuesday, and by Friday, you've packed up the entire office, vacated the office space, and everybody's gone their separate ways. So your entire life dissolves yeah. in and you've probably seventy-two been a hours. Sort of a family up until that oh, point, yeah. right? You're seeing people. Yeah. Um, so that was hard. And then you'd have to sort of figure out what to do with yourself. I, I've always credited, I have a fairly high tolerance for risk and, well, uncertainty more than risk. I never mm. I never thought it was very risky. Like, what's the worst thing that can happen to you? Yeah. You know, you lose and you go back to, you know, your department store job <laughs> yeah. selling China at Bullocks. Yeah. And you're, you figure out what you're going to do next. So I've always had um, a, a tolerance for that. That's never been... For whatever reason, I was it's just baked in my genetic code or something. So that was always helpful because, like as you can see from my track record, um, being unemployed was just a regular part of my <laughs> yeah. of my routine. But I remember uh, seeing a friend of mine from college. Um, I was I don't remember which campaign I was working, which losing campaign I was working on, but sometime in the in the nineties and um, or the eighties, and he had a job. <laughs> 
he had been a business major in college and he had a job like at a company. Maybe he was an accountant. I can't remember. Yeah. He had a brand new car and he had a 401k. <laughs> and I remember feeling really bad for him. Like, oh, John, dude, I'm so sorry that you're like in that job where I'm here eating pizza at 10 p.m., no money. Yeah. You know, I'm going to be unemployed in a month when we lose. But I just thought I was I was just where I wanted to be and I couldn't imagine wanting to be anyplace else. So yeah. I've always felt really grateful for that. It's something I want for my kids is to have yeah. that sense of passion and purpose. Yeah. Um, even if the course changes over time because it always does. Um, but I really, I, I loved it. I loved it. And, yeah. and you know, the, and I, I think, you know, back to your question about what did you do, you just like knew that the next, like, like you, I remember getting up, maybe it was the Mondale campaign and reading the paper and going through all the Senate races, you know, what's the fallout? How do we analyze it? What are we going to do next? You know, it was uh-huh. never like, oh, it's over. It was just... Yeah. Okay. That's a that's a speed bump. On well, that, to the next. That temperament probably serves and serve you well. Yeah. In that type of role. Yeah, and there was a real sense of adventure a, a, about it. Like you know, we were going to reinvent the world or save the world yeah. or something. And so, and look, the people, same people, like I said, everyone went away, but they kept showing up again. You know, yeah. which is why, as you've noticed, I'm still in touch with people from very much in touch with people from those earlier chapters yeah. of my life. Yeah. Um, because it's it's more of a shared mission. Yeah. You know, and it was, you know. Um, something that people do for passion, not for profit. Right. Although there's some profitable aspects to yeah. political consulting, which was never something that was interesting to me outside of really feeling strongly about a particular candidate. Yeah. But, you know. Well, speaking of a particular candidate, uh, Bill Clinton, how did that begin? You said he reached out to you or his campaign reached out to you? Yeah. So I, you know, democratic politics is a bit of a small world. Mm-hmm. Um like a lot of other businesses. And so, you know, the, there's the, the people who are thinking about running or who are prospective, you know, future whatevers are, you know, become known over time. And so I had, I met Bill Clinton for the first time in 1988 when I was working for Michael Dukakis and I was working on the California campaign uh, in the prime, no, sometime in the summer between the convention, Dukakis, I think, he did the nominee. It was, he, it was clear he was going to be the nominee. And he was coming to Los Angeles for a big fundraiser. And Kitty Dukakis had an accident. And so he had to go home to be with her. She mm-hmm. did something to her neck. So we needed a headliner for this. This We had 24 hours to huh. get a headliner that was going to just a big, whatever the ticket was, it was a lot of money. And so we just started dialing around. Yeah. And somebody landed on Bill Clinton, who was then head of the Democratic Governors Association right. and was happened to be in like Saginaw, Michigan or something at a, a, a governor's conference. And he said, yeah, if you can get me a plane, because I got to be back in Little Rock. Yeah. And like, it's LA, we can get you a plane. And I need a clean shirt. <laughs> whatever size. So we're like, check. Uh, so he came um, and he killed it. He mm. was so good. He was so inspiring and funny and, and he did was clearly it, this huge talent. At that time, did you feel like this was different? Like you'd worked for a lot of candidates who I'm sure you, whom you admired. Did you, was there any party that went, well, this guy yeah. has got yeah. something oh, that's for sure. a little bit different and a little bit. Yeah. yeah. He had, um, in uh, a lot of charisma, obviously, mm-hmm. um, which a lot of politicians do, and it just you know a, a, a really amazing command of of the policy and political landscape. Mm. Um, and like you, I can't say that I like you knew this guy was a talent. Yeah, you knew he was a raw talent. That was really obvious. Where it was going to go, I mean, you never right. know. Right. But I thought, we, we, I mean, everybody thought, yeah, we're going to see him again. So. Um, 
then he went, this was before the convention because it was like, oh my God, this guy is it. And then at the 1988 Democratic convention, Bill Clinton gave a speech that and it was, was supposed too, to last five minutes. It was too long. It was I remember, 30 right? minutes. Yes, yeah. that's right. And when he said- He got a lot of criticism. Oh my God, it's terrible. Right. He said in conclusion and the whole entire um, audience cheered. Started cheering. Yeah. That's right. So because they were just like, get this guy off the stage. <laughs> so he went from being like this incredibly like people feeling like, oh my God, this is the next big thing to- get him off the stage. Mm. And then he went on Johnny Carson and um, played his sax. And, um, you know, that put him back on a track of 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 being uh, somebody that was, uh, you know, a potential, high yeah. you know, high potential player. Well, that's interesting. I mean, that's so he goes on Johnny Carson with the saxophone. You're someone who's worked in entertainment. You worked yeah. in politics. What was it about that that sort of either connected or put the, the things about the convention aside for people? Um, I think that the world has changed a lot, but I think when politicians can be self-deprecating yeah. and, you know, be as in on the joke about themselves as everybody else, I think that's a very endearing quality. It's an endearing quality in any. Uh, I mean, sure. any kind of, self, we, like, you know that if you're going to start a speech with self-deprecating humor, you're going to get the audience on your side, right? <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's become a bit of a of a cliche. But he went on and he seemed to genuinely understand that he screwed up. That yeah. he had this big moment and he, and, he, and he whiffed. And he was willing to both acknowledge that and to make fun of himself and to have a little fun and do something that was very unpolitician which was to play a saxophone. So, yeah. um, so... I think that combination of of things, and you know, again, this just innate skills that he had, this innate yeah. charm and um, and uh, just agility was was pretty. Odd. You didn't have to spend much time with him to know that this guy was a cut above. I mean, there were other may, may have been other people in that class, but there weren't many. Got it. And um, so yeah, so fast forward four years later. Um, yeah. Well, th yeah. So then um, Mickey Cantor, who I, was the first person that I worked for uh, when he was the California champ chairman of the Mondale campaign, he ended up as he, ha as I noted, was a, was an old friend of the of the Clintons from Illegal Aid days, and he's the person who ultimately reached out to me um, and said, "Hey, Bill Clinton's looking for a press secretary." This was the summer of 1991. Mm. And how? Uh, where was? Kind of where was Clinton in the mix of the candidates at that point? Well, George H.W. Bush was in the aftermath of the Gulf War. And so he was very popular. And most people did not think that Democrat, any Democrat had a very good shot right. of winning. Although right. that was starting to dissipate a little bit. But they certainly didn't think the governor of Arkansas. It wasn't like it was like getting on, oh, get on the on the on the engine that's going to drive the train, right? Yeah. But I just liked him. I just thought he was saying things that needed to be said. He... You know, he was a, he he had been a member of the the Democratic Leadership Committee or conference, the DLC, which was a centrist organization. Many of the charter members were Southerners, um, but they had a you know it was a partly populist, it was partly practical centrist politics, which really resonated with me. And I thought yeah. this guy is, um, you know, the 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 kind of the Mondale approach, which was you know pretty traditional liberal, and then the Duk and the Dukakis approach was sort of technocratic, mm -hmm. um, and then there was the Clinton approach, which was this kind of uh, middle of the country, um, practical against a little bit of populism thrown in, and a huge sense of optimism and generational change. Yeah. So um, that just really appealed to me. So that's you know, and I had been looking. There was there were there were seven candidates in that six yeah. or seven candidates right. in that race in the beginning, and. You know, Clinton, I would say that Clinton was probably widely recognized as having the most innate 
talent, mm-hmm. raw talent, but he also already had a little bit of baggage even back then. You know, sure. there was a little bit of of a controversy, sport, mm-hmm, yep. a little bit of about a, his personal life about his personal life. Yeah. So you know the the and and there was a little. I mean, it became known as slickness, but there was a little bit of that for sure. And yeah. so and and he was also from Arkansas, right? So it yeah. wasn't exactly. You're looking at people from Texas or New York or people that can bring big swaths of delegates and donors with them, and that wasn't him. Yeah. Um, and so there was a little skepticism among the coastal establishments that this guy could really put it together. But um, so I went to work. He didn't – it's, you know, in hindsight, he didn't declare until October of 1991, mm. uh, which was incredibly late by today's standards. Yeah. And it was partly because of, of Bush, President Bush's strength. Yeah. And I think even I was like, well – you know, Bush, if you had to bet the farm, you would have thought Bush would be reelected. Right. And, but I thought if Bill Clinton quits himself well, he could be well positioned. To win. To win in 96. Yeah. But it, it didn't work out that way. No. He ended up winning. He ended up winning. Yeah. Yeah. What was, when, when the campaign started, so I flew to Orlando, Florida, you know, and, and jumped on the, on the plane and I mostly traveled with Clinton almost uh, without stop, whenever he t- traveled, I was with him f- from there forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and when at first we were flying around on borrowed like like propeller planes. I mean, yeah. there was like it wasn't like again there wasn't like this huge like outpouring of oh my god. So you start out it was myself, um, an Arkansas uh, police, you know, state policeman, uh, and then. Um, sort of the, you know, Clinton's sort of consigliere, this man named Bruce Lindsay. So, you know, a lot of times it's the four of us flying around and going places. And then, you know, once, you know, but then we got to like some of the early primaries. So Iowa was not a factor because Tom Harkin, who was the United States Senate from Iowa, was running also. And so Mm. he was the... You know, he was the home homer, and so nobody really competed there because he was going to win, which he did. And then it all came down to New Hampshire, New Hampshire which was yeah. incredibly um, tumultuous because mm. there were, you know, twin revelations of not only Clinton's, you know, marital infidelities and the appearance on 60 Minutes. There was a letter, the Dear Colonel Holmes letter, where Clinton had tried to get out or had sort of gotten out of the draft. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they became both very explosive and um, the campaign, which had been, you know, gaining some quite a bit of traction, mm-hmm. you know, really just hit a wall. Mm-hmm. And with 10 days left, the bottom was falling out. And I think people inside the campaign more than not thought he would probably end up dropping out before yeah. before the uh, before primary day. But he didn't. And he just doubled down. And, um, you know, he he just decided like his entire political life was staked on this next you know, 10 days or even less, week. And he, I have never seen a person just decide that they were not going down that way. And Mm -hmm. he just dug down to a level that I've never seen another person do and fought with every shred of will that he had. And um, we were in, I should remember this, I think it was Keene, uh, at a union hall on the Friday before the election. And he gave the speech where he said, you know, He'd said a lot. You know, they've tried to make this campaign about my past, and I want to make it about your future. Yeah. If you stand with me on Tuesday, I will stand with you till the last dog dies. And (laughs) it was just a moment where it was like, oh my God, he's going to pull this off. He is going. And you could not a pin drop in the room, and you knew that every single, you know, mostly labor, they were they were going to go out and vote for him. Yeah. They were going to go out and vote for him. Right. 
because it wasn't about his past. It was about their future. He managed to always turn it back to, they want to make this about me, but it's about you. And no matter how much, you know, we get so dragged into the, you know, the reading the stage directions in, in politics these days. It's all about analyzing what he, no, it's about the economy, stupid, and don't forget yeah. health care and change, you know, and he managed to stay on that message and really talk to people and listen to people and connect with people and Tuesday came and he was second and New Hampshire just made me the comeback kid. Yeah. And it wasn't a straight line from there. Yeah. It was a very tumultuous campaign in a lot of ways. But after that, I personally thought like he's got a shot. What is going to defeat this guy? Yeah. Like what's ever gonna knock him totally off his feet? Can't do it. That can't do it. Yeah. And you know, I knew, you know, you knew, we all knew we were seeing something really um special in the in the sense that there's this guy is there's something about that like we're not gonna see this this alchemy again. Yeah. This is something that's a once in a lifetime. And as as press secretary, when he delivers the line, it's not about my past, it's about your future or something yeah. like that. Is that something you guys had discussed beforehand? Is that part of your talking points as the press secretary? Yeah, is it sometimes just him it is off the but cuff? For stuff like that, that that came from him. Just from him. Yeah. The best I mean, look, there's plenty of canned lines or things that you think about before. Yeah. And even that one he said many times, but it was it had the you know the benefit of being true for yeah. him. You know what I mean? It like of course he didn't want it to be about his past for a lot of reasons. Of course. But also he understood that he you know he's always said I mean I've learned everything I learned about politics I learned from him and it's always every election is about the future and mm -hmm. every election is about change. Yeah. Even if you're the incumbent, he said I ran for you know governor of Arkansas five times and I ran as a candidate of change every time. Yeah. You know and so you he, do a pretty good impression <laughs> of him though. <laughs> spent, I spent a lot of time listening <laughs> to him. Um, but he. But that was so, you know, and, and he, he would always say things that he genuinely, that were really essential to him. We have to get people to vote their hopes and not their fears. Yeah. And, you know, th that is like, think about that in this context. Yeah. You know, this is, we are living in a world where people only vote their fears, right? They're, they're, the, they're going to vote for the least bad option and they're going to vote for the person who they think will stop the worst, uh, you know, outcome. And for Clinton, it was like, you cannot govern if you cannot summon hope, yeah. if you cannot paint a picture of a better future, you can't, you know, that was all part of what he was trying to do. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I think people, people often just thought he was a phony, um, but they fundamentally misunderstood, like, not that he didn't have slick qualities and, you know, we could spend hours on, on some of those, of those, you know, why that was both fair and not fair but um at the at the end of the day and the reason that he was successful in spite of being impeached and why he left office with the highest approval rating of any president in history and why even in the face of being impeached his approval rating never went below 60 we have a president now who's almost never been above 41 yeah um and different times but it was the people had a fundamental sense that when push came to shove that he would be on their side yeah and he he, he had a visceral connect i mean he came from you know, very complex and, you know, not, he didn't have a particularly idyllic childhood yeah. and he came from, um, like he really understood people's struggles. Yeah. Um, really in a fundamental way. You made a comment to me once that he's sort of, he's a sinner. Sort yeah. Of. And so that, that was part of his appeal in oh, that for sure. people, you could criticize him for those sins, which many people did and, may, and maybe rightly so. But, but I would, 
he believes he's a sinner. Right. Right. I don't judge him to be a sinner. He judges himself. Right. And there was an sinner. identification that people had with yes. that rather than a maybe right. a judgment in some of these and cases. And if you've probably yeah, have seen the coverage, obviously when President Trump was acquitted, um, he had a press conference and then they contrasted that to I, President I saw Clinton. that. Yep. And as he was walking away from the podium, right, after he, he apologized to the country and he had put the country through an ordeal and it was entirely his fault. And yep. look, you could ju- judge the aftermath is political or not, but he it, it, his own actions had put him in a pickle and Correct. he yep. apologized for that and um, said, now we need to come together as a country and move forward and solve the problems. And then he walked away and somebody shouted at him, you know, can you forgive and forget? And he said, well, I've always believed that those of us who need forgiveness have to be willing to offer it. And um, mm. that kind of summarizes a lot of ways the – at the end of the day, um, it was never – I mean he had days where he felt sorry for himself and wanted to pound his opponents and his enemies. But at the end of the day, he believes in forgiveness and uh, that he that – he, that in, in redemption, right? And if you, if you believe you need to be redeemed, you might be willing to see that other people are, redeem, are redeemable. Yeah. And I think that was – and I think that something about that – was ultimately what sustained him. Yeah. Do you, in the post-Me Too era, do you view President Clinton's behavior differently? I think the I think it would have very different consequences, you know, if 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 it were contemporaneous. Um, and already, I think it's had consequences, right? I think there's a, you know, I I think it's. I mean, I think the Clinton era has moved on a little bit, but I think there's also – I think the party is trying to understand how to, um, you know, take that on and what does that mean. Yeah. I think I think if – depending on when it happened, right? I mean, timing is everything in this life, but maybe it would have guided him differently. Maybe he would have made different choices if the consequences were different, hmm. you know, because um, – He might m- not make that choice today. Right. Having learned the lessons, right? Because of it was, the Me Too you know, movement. whether it's Hollywood or politics, there was a certain like that was you could do that. You yeah. could get away with it, like President Trump said. They let you get away with it, and right, um, that's that's got to end. Yeah. Um, but to to use his uh, reasoning about the future versus the past, we can judge it in the past. But one thing that the Me Too movement may be doing is preventing a future leader from maybe making those same choices. Right. And, and I so do, there's great value in that. Right. I, yes, for sure. So I wanted to get to post-presidency, working the presidency. How did you find yourself? There's, I'm sure some of our community members who are fans of the West Wing. Yeah. The C.J. Craig character, the Allison Janney character was sort of based on your yeah. role and your life. Yeah. How did that come to be? And, and was that a lot of fun working on that it show. was a lot of fun. So while I was at the White House, um, uh, Rob Reiner and Aaron Sorkin were making a movie called The American President. With Michael Douglas. With Michael Douglas. Yeah. And so they came and sort of spent a little time hanging around the White House um, mm. to sort of get, you know, they were still, I guess, working on the script. Or that was probably mostly done. But anyway, and doing things like measuring the drapes. and But anyway, Aaron hang, <laughs> hung around a lot and just was really taken by the culture of the Clinton White House yeah. and by, um, you know, the youthfulness and the informality and also the treachery, the, the, the high wire act that there's no playbook, right? This isn't like, you know, like there's a playbook and you get, you get to, you know, you walk in the door on, you know, 1201 on January 20th and like... Like you're starting from scratch, yeah, right. So, and he, I mean, he was he came a little after that, but anyway. Long story short, 
a few years later, after I had left the White House and my husband and I moved here back to L.A., he called me and said, hey, I've written this this pilot for a TV show. Will you take a look at it? And I did, and I thought I thought it was really good, but it was kind of the middle of impeachment. I thought, no one's ever going to make this, you know, again, my insightful knowledge of Hollywood. Um, and I read it. I gave him a few notes. I said, I think it's, you know, I, I this would be great. Uh, although it's just the pilot. There's a lot of exposition. But anyway, um, a while, it took a while because there was this sort of middle of impeachment thing. And then one yeah. day he called me and said, hey, they're gonna, we're going to make it. NBC and Warner Brothers are going to make this show. and uh, Or I guess Warner Brothers is going to make it and try to sell it. And um, will you come on as a consultant and stay with us if, if we get picked up? And hmm. I was like, sure. <laughs> and I did. And it was great fun. It huh. really was. Um, I spent a lot of time, particularly in the early seasons, I kind of worked with everybody. Every episode had a different director and um, – and then there was a, a regular team of writers, but the, the they had a lot of questions, particularly as they were kind of creating the look and feel of the show. Like, if the president goes through a door, yeah, is he surrounded by Secret Service agents? And the answer is, well, it depends on what door it is, right, and where he's going. Um, and what's those little pins that everybody wears on their lapel? And, um, you know, just everything from the totally mundane little optical questions to the to the big um, questions. And so I, over the run of the show, I worked mostly with the writers just – you know, telling stories. I was like, if I knew I could make a living making stuff up and not getting hauled before the grand jury, I, I might have been like done this. This is super fun. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so Aaron was um, very theatrical, right, in his in his approach, um, although he's uh, obviously an incredibly gifted television writer, but he would say things like, okay, I want to do a, a bottle episode where everybody's in one room and it's midnight and they're in tuxedos. Why would they be there? And so we'd have to go like, okay, well, it could be this, it could be that, it could be a state dinner, it could be this, it could be at the White House correspondence, and all of a sudden they get a call and everybody has to rush back to the White House. I mean, so we'd sit there and just break these stories and huh. tell stories. I think that was in an episode, wasn't it? Yes, People it was. in the situation <laughs> yeah, room yeah. in tuxedos? Yes, it was. Yeah. Um, and I spent a lot of time on the character of CJ, obviously, because um, well, I had the most experience experience that was most relevant to her character. Yeah. Um, but also everybody and the interplay between the characters. And it was just, it was really fun. And is it right that your husband, Todd's character is sort of based on the uh. reporter character <laughs> in the show or is that a problem? No, it's, no, it's, it's definitely, there's definitely some truth to it. My husband, um, Todd Purdom, Todd Purdom, uh, Harvard Westlake parent, obviously, <laughs> um, his, he was the, uh, as I was leaving the White House, he came to cover the White House for the New York Times. And we didn't date then because I would have been fired, unlike James and Mary, which I say because James oh, is James a Carville man. James yeah. Carville and Mary. <laughs> so, now. Yeah. Yeah. But whatever, because they were, they kind of kept it a secret, but they were dating all through the Clinton, you know, years um, yeah. when they got married pretty early on. But um, anyway, so we didn't start dating until, until later, but um, – I think uh, Aaron did fast forward certain aspects of our of our relationship. He needed a romantic, yeah, you know, yeah, 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 situation yeah. to so we, create on the Danny show. Danny Cannon, great character, um, and yeah, I mean, CJ needed a little, you know, a love a interest. Little, yeah, she needed a love interest and a little, a little something. So got it. Yeah, so it's a little bit based on us. Got yeah. it. That's exciting. So yeah. before we leave, I wanted to ask you a few. There's a few standard questions we're asking okay. as part of the supporting cast. They relate to Los Angeles, and you're back in Los Angeles, indeed. Now. Um, we're known for our movies, our food, and our climate. So I have three questions. First, what is Dee Dee Meyer's favorite movie? You know, it's hard to beat a movie like Casablanca, but, mm -hmm. you know, there's also the movies that kind of touch you at the time. And I yeah. remember seeing um, Paul Newman in The Verdict. 
It's okay. just one that I always remember and thinking, oh my God, that was an unbelievable performance. Yeah. But a big Paul Newman fan. Um, okay. Yeah. I loved uh, All the President's Men. Yeah. You know, that was a great movie. Um, God, there's so many okay. great movies and they're not all Warner Brothers movies, but there are a lot of them are. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, those are two good but ones. Yeah. What's your favorite meal? in Los Angeles. It can be something you make at home. It can be... Yes, uh, my husband is a fantastic oh, cook. I didn't know that. Yes, he's an amazing cook, so we eat really, really well. What um, is your favorite thing that Todd makes? Um, we cook. He cooks kind of... Well, he does everything. He's a devotee of Julia Child, although ah. he, she's not his only influence, but perhaps his his most... Um, I like... He, he, he'll he do an incredible, like a boeuf bourguignon, but we'll also do yeah, sort of a lot Julia. of Italian, yeah. like... Um, like a, like a mil- chicken milanese with um, some good greens, and mm. um, I love that. You know, he, he so another classic California dish. We were just talking about this the other night. Um, tri-tip. You can't get it yeah, anyplace else. It's true. Get a tri-tip on the grill with friends in the summer and like a, yeah. you know, corned bean and tomato salad and, yeah. you know, just uh, some good broccolini on the grill. Something like that is yeah. – you can't beat that for a summer barbecue. There are so many great places to eat here. Yeah. And, you know, we are foodies. Okay. Um, for sure. But But you would say the best would be something at home. It's hard to, you know, (laughs) it's hard to beat. uh, What's your favorite uh, place in Los Angeles? Is there a location, a part of town, a place you love? Yeah, uh, Dodger Stadium. Dodger Stadium. So you're a big Dodger fan. I'm a big Dodger fan. And yeah, yeah, you know, there's something I've been, when I was in high school, um, for before I was in high school, when I was in before we could drive, we would we my, for whatever reason my friends, guys and girls, we were all big Dodger fans, mm-hmm. and um, for those of you Dodger fans, we cut school a couple of times. There was a sudden death, you know, a um, a uh, wild card playoff game against the Phillies, maybe nineteen seventy seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Dodgers won. Cut school to do that as soon as we could drive. <laughs> We went to as many Dodger games as we could, hmm. um, and my this group of friends were still friends. And our we have a daily text chain that doesn't exclusively revolve around the Dodgers, but it's a strong through line. So, the smell of the grass when you first walk into Dodger yeah. Stadium, you know the roar of the crowd, the sound of the crack of the ball. It's it's hard to beat. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I've, I'm proud to say I've I've um, indoctrinated my son, who's become a good baseball and Dodger fan. So oh, got it. Yeah. So it's the family team now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's the family team. Last question. Um, I, as you know, you asked about my daughter when you arrived. Yeah. I'm a new parent. Um, what is your best parenting advice? I got some great parenting advice um, w- w- uh, when my oldest daughter, who's now in college uh, at, at Barnard in, in New York, uh, was an infant. And it was let your kids struggle. Right. Mm. I went to this baby class and the babies were like four months old, maybe a little older. They were rolling over but not crawling. And they would put little toys on the mat and put the babies on the mat and just mostly observe them and say, you know, just observe your child. Like don't try to control her environment. Don't – and you'd see the babies occasionally. They would see something they wanted and they might whine a little bit as they reached for the toy. And it was like, no, no, don't give her the toy. She's okay. (laughs) You know, um – let her figure out how to get the toy because mm. when she does, you'll see the sense of accomplishment, the sense of satisfaction is infinitely greater than if you give it to her. And mm. she will learn that with struggle comes reward and that you can – not everything comes easily and that, um, um, that you know, 
and, and, and that you can set clear sort of the same principles. You, you can set limits and let your children make decisions, not every decision, but you can, as you'll see when your child is growing up, do you want a banana or do you want an apple? It's mm-hmm. not like, do you want a banana or do you want a cupcake? But let them make ch- choices and trust their choices, first with small things and then with larger things. And yeah. they'll have to decide, um, you know, what they're willing to give up to get what they want. And that is something um, that's really important. I'll leave you with one anecdote. There was a session as, as, the, as, as my daughter got a little older to toddler and the kids started to walk. They, they provided them a snack, which was banana and pear juice. And they would set up a little area. And there were just a couple of rules. It, you had to go they, – they would set up little like uh, cushions that they could sit on. And to eat, you had to go into this little area that had the cushions and you had to sit on the cushion. And you didn't have to have the snack. It was optional. But if you wanted it, you had to put down your toy. You had to go in and sit down and put on a bib. That was it. And if you didn't want to do that, that was fine. Yeah. But if you wanted the snack, you had to do that. And kids all got to that place in different ways and on different timetables, but each of them eventually decided they wanted to try the snack. Hmm. Some kids would only have it once. They go, no, it was fine. I don't need to have that again. I'm going to just rather play with my toy. And other kids every week when they would put the snack time, they'd go in and sit down and put on their bib. And it was just interesting that they were all capable of making that simple choice at yeah. a young age. It wasn't mandatory. The snack was optional. Yeah. But it, the, the lesson to me was, in, was impervious. It was... Set some limits and let your kid make choices within um, the context of what they're um, – depending on how old they are, you know, yeah. what's – what's what's um, Appropriate. Appropriate. Thank yeah. you. And um, that really – I, you know, you don't have kids until you have kids, right? Yeah. So you're kind of new at it. And that really changed my – for sure the way I parented and became foundational in in my parenting of of trying to trust your kids – to make appropriate decisions for themselves and not make things too easy for them. Struggle is part of life. Yeah, right. And reaching for the toy until you figure out how to get it is... Important. It's important. Yeah. Didi Myers, thank you so much. Thank you, thank Eli. Thank you for joining me yeah, on the supporting my cast. My pleasure. 